Welcome to episode 112 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is federal analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And news broke last week about Amazon's intent to acquire um, iRobot for almost $2 billion. And the question that's on many people's minds, uh, are there any sort of plans to get into enabling a 5G robot? You know, and I know that Amazon has a, they have a robot that they've launched that's like for home use and that sort of thing. They've acquired other robotic companies in the past to um, manage, you know, their, their warehousing operations and that sort of thing. But what's interesting, a lot of people may not know this, and actually our friend Mike Dano at Light Reading wrote an article at about the same time they, uh, they made that announcement, um, Amazon also entered into a licensing agreement with a company called InterDigital. And they're an R&D company uh, that's focused on wireless technology. And in fact, um, companies like Asus and Jamais have uh, license agreements with InterDigital. So it may not be too far of a stretch you know, to determine that you know, um, Amazon may have designs to do something from a 5G enablement perspective uh, with a robot in the home. But what are your thoughts? I think um, Amazon is one of those companies that has, um, you know, many different uh, pots boiling at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they've got stuff going on in 5G, They've got stuff going on in robotics. You know, they have that home home robot that they announced. I forget what it was called. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so like there's tons of different um, things that they're actively working on um, individually. And I have a feeling that slowly those are all going to come together. So I don't think it's crazy to think that there's a potential for a 5G robot down the road from Amazon. But I think that there's still other things that they're working on that very likely... Um, still need to mature before that. I think they will be ready to come to market with something like that. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, one, one of the big poster child use cases other than autonomous driving um, for 5G based on its low latency and, you know, the high throughput is um, drone delivery, right? And so uh, that's something that's probably one of the other pots that's boiling on, on the Amazon stovetop there. But it, it's interesting, you know, uh, you know, I've read some other analysis on uh, the iRobot thing, and you know, some analysts believe that that gives Apple the, or I'm sorry, Amazon the opportunity um, to understand kind of the the interior digital mapping opportunity within homes for like smart homes and their ecosystem of Alexa devices. But it's interesting um, that both sort of occurred about the same time, but uh, we'll we'll see what's in store. But let's move to your first topic this week. And there was a really big um, agreement that the president signed this week. It's the Chips and Science Act. And you want to talk about uh, what that potentially means for both 5G and 6G. Yeah, so the Chips and Science Act is a $280 billion funding bill. Um, so the Chips Act has actually been like kind of agreed to in multiple ways through different parts of the legislative branch. Mm -hmm. um, but it never got funded. Um, and, you know, the way the U.S. government works, unless you have funding, it means nothing. Um, so they managed to get uh, $280 billion of this package passed. Uh, he signed it on Tuesday. 
but out of that 280 billion, 52 is specifically dedicated towards chips. And it's not just fabs, but it's yeah. also R&D um, and education and, and basically a way to create and, in, uh, and, and deepen the industry within the United States that would facilitate our own homegrown, um, you know, ability to create chips. We already do have some of that, but yeah. it's fairly isolated um, within, you know, let's say a couple companies. And then there's a lot of companies abroad that have these capabilities that are bringing them to the U.S., but they are not homegrown. Yeah. And um, some of those are, you know, tax, a 25% tax credit. Um, one of those is $1.5 billion for open architecture software-based wireless technologies, also known as ORAN. Right. Um, so, so there's definitely some very specific 5G applications in this. Um, and that $52 billion is you know, focus specifically towards chip production, but there's, there's that 1.5 for ORAN and there's yeah. a tax credits, which is worth 24 billion um, for semiconductor manufacturing. So there's little pieces here and there that are, um, I think really compelling. Um, and I think will enable some really positive uh, advances for chip making in the US. I would agree. You know, you, you mentioned we do have fabrication here. It's kind of concentrated with a few companies. You know, and we've also talked on prior podcasts about companies like Qualcomm and Marvell that are leading the charge with respect to enabling the 5G ecosystem. Both of those companies have done open RAN accelerator cards. And so I, you know, my, my assumption is this funding would help, um, you know, accelerate, proliferate, you know, that activity beyond just, you know, just a very small you know, um, number of companies. So I, I think it's a positive thing. A lot of times these bills are kind of, you know, rhetoric and, and that sort of thing, but but there's some significant budget behind this. I mean, billions of dollars, I mean, that's a lot of money, but as you and I know in the semiconductor industry, just to bring up a new fab, what, what is the average these days? 20, 30 billion to do that? It's, it's in the 10 to 20 billion per fab. Yeah, it's huge. And I, and I know this because um, I live in Austin, Texas and in Taylor, right outside of town. In fact, um, I was driving to visit my daughter one weekend and I drove by um, the area where Samsung is building this new fab and just the scale is just, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's I think that one's 17 billion. Yeah. So it's, it, it's massive. And so it's going to require not only, you know, budget, but a discrete focus. So, um, so I think it's all a good thing. So, but let's move to my second topic this week. And on the heels of the, uh, the 5G spectrum auctions in India, News uh, was breaking this week uh, from Airtel, and um, they're stating that they, they have big designs on standalone private 5G networking services. And I found it interesting that they believe that by 2024, over 40% of their overall revenue that they drive off of their 5G deployment and investment could be in private. And that's a surprise to me. There is a lot of manufacturing, which I think would benefit in, in India. But at the same time, I found it interesting as well, because we've also talked about another topic, and it's the reluctance. It seems like the reluctance of the Indian government to do something that's very similar to ONGO, CBRS in the U.S., where they democratize you know, the, the availability, uh, availability of spectrum and allow individual enterprises, municipalities, schools, whatnot, um, 
uh, the ability to be able to purchase or lease and then and then deploy their own networks. In the US, there are multiple routes to private 5G. And it seems in India, it's going to be through the mobile network operator because um, in this press release that I read, um, you know, the Minister for Electronics, IT and Communications stated that allocating 5G spectrum to private companies was, would be a very complex issue. But, you know, I think they could learn from what the US has done there are some some other examples of uh, of this sort of spectrum democratization and, and parts of Europe and that sort of thing. And so I think it'll be really limiting because from my perspective, if you limit the number of paths to deploy private 5G networking, um, you're going to limit innovation. And, you know, I, I think, you know, also you're going to, you know, you're going to set a price at a certain level. And typically when you have, you know, more routes to a certain solution, um, that drives affordability as well. But what, what do you think about all this? I think it's kind of a, a given that they would do something like this. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there are going to be a lot of enterprise applications, especially if they go SA early and fast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, devices are there. I think they could they could go straight SA right away. Um, it would allow them to actually uh, split out their network in a way where I don't really think they need to actually have um, you know, on go or some kind of, you know, uh, dedicated spectrum sharing, because yeah. if they're able to splice out their network correctly and use network slicing, you know, they could actually just slice out parts of their network as needed. Yeah. yeah my only point in, in mentioning, um, you know, like an on go model is just, you know, allowing non mobile network operators to, you know, provide solutions, you know, like we have in the U S today. So, but it'll be interesting, you know, obviously India is a market that's well behind most of the other markets with respect to cellular and its 5G deployment. I mean, they're just, they just, you know, finished up these auctions just recently. You know, we've been at it in the US and, you know, China's been at it and, you know, Europe's been at it for quite a bit longer there, but it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But let's move to your second topic this week. And I, I caught this news as well. Uh, there was an FCC pullback on funding uh, tied to to Starlink and a company called LTD Broadband. And you want to talk about that? Yeah, so there's funding that's been allocated um, basically by the FCC to um, give broadband access, you know, um, around the world and specifically within North America. But the idea is that it could be used elsewhere. And the RDOF... Um, funding, which is spelled as it stands for Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Mm -hmm. um, there's $9.2 billion in this fund and two organizations, LTD, Broad LTD Broadband and um, Starlink um, got $1.3 billion and then $885 million respectively yeah. uh, to provide 100 megabit down 20 megabit up service to 600,400 642,925 locations across 35 states, which is very specific. Um, and it's as a result of an auction, but basically the FCC declined their application to, to get this funding. Um, and it's, they say that, you know, in Starlink's case, the decision was based on factors indicating the technology is not yet ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. And then in a public notice, FCC cited recent UCLA data which showed Starlink speeds declined from Q4 21 and Q20, Q2 22 
and it pointed that Starlink's uplink speeds came in well below the promised 20 megabits. So um, this isn't really um, a shocker. If you look at um, like some of the the notices and things that were posted um, and why they would make this move. But uh, I think it was a bit of a shock to a lot of people because they thought this was kind of a done deal. Um, And I have to be honest with you, it's almost a little refreshing to see um, the FCC calling out ISPs when they don't actually deliver. Um, However, um, this does feel like a little bit of a rug pull at the same time um, because this is a lot of money. um, And there's a lot of money that I think a lot of these, both these companies um, were expecting to uh, facilitate their operations and their profitability. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, the the statement that uh, Jessica Rosenworcel gave was that um, Starlink's technology has a real promise, but the question before us was whether to publicly subsidize uh, it's still developing technology for consumer broadband. Right. So um, I, it remains to be seen what the, um, you know, what the outcome will be as a result of this. Um, but they will um, forfeit the funds and they will go back into the universal service fund um, which will be available for other state and federal funding. Right. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. It's a lot of money. Um, and I have a feeling that there will be um, lawsuits thrown left and right um, as a result of this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they did technically not deliver on their, their bid. Right. You know, and I, I wasn't aware that, there was actually a performance degradation um, over subsequent quarters with, with Starlink. And so I, I, I understand that, you know, it's interesting. So I participated in um, a digital divide forum this week. And actually we, you know, I, I did a keen, uh, not a keynote, a fireside chat with Jeff Long, um, who um, is with AT&T as a senior executive and he heads up their, their broadband um, initiatives. And we talk about this subject, and one of the points that I made was, you know, on the FCC setting this this minimum performance requirement, that's great, but when you set when you're when you're too prescriptive, then it prevents it prevents the ability to to even get started, you know, in bridging you know the unconnected, and you know certainly if Starlink has demonstrated you know performance hits, then that calls things into question. And if there was concern around, you know, the, the, you know, the platform, the technology not being ready for prime time yet, I get it. But I think to your point, that those were dollars that Starlink was banking on. Did they, based on that, did they engage in certain, you know, engineering sort of NRE activities that have real costs associated with them? And is there, is there going to be a financial impact for that? For the, for that? I also wanted to add that there were. Um, the RDOF rules actually set speeds at 25, da- 25 down to three up as a minimum. Okay. And that there were different tiers of 25, 50, 101 gigabit. Um, and that they were most of 99% of the locations were bid at 100 megabits and down and tw- 20 up. So okay. they did have a choice to actually bid at lower speeds, but it probably also tra- might have translated to less, less money. Yeah. Um, 
So, and I'm actually reading an article from Diana over at Fierce Wireless or for Fierce Telecom back from June, yeah. where she kind of details how Starlink's latest Google results real what they might mean for you know their um, their RDOF funding, and it looks like uh, that was a bad omen. Oh, um, Diana. <laughs> yeah, they, they um they missed their target, and um, it, it sounds like this may have been they may have known this was coming. Yeah, so Diana can take her victory lap on that. So we'll have to have her on a future podcast as well. It's been a while since we've had her on. Well, let's move to my third and final topic this week. And I want to talk about um, a 5G neutral host, a millimeter wave trial that's occurring in Paris. And I was just there. We've talked about that on prior podcasts. But this is in, a, in an area called La Défense. And La Défense is a suburb just right outside of Paris proper. I know it well because when I worked in corporate America, I worked for uh, Dassault Systems. Uh, that is the software division of uh, Dassault Aviation, and they deliver a product called Katia, um, as well as a number of other different solutions, but Katia is a CAD CAM um, solution. Mm-hmm. And a lot of fonts is known as a, is a is sort of a technical hub. And so this, from my perspective, is a great, uh, is a great place to deploy the, um, these particular trials. And some of the um, use cases that they're, that they're looking at are um, autonomous mobility services, smart energy grid systems, various uh, telehealth solutions and e-health solutions, IoT monitoring and tracking, and then near and dear to your heart, um, some AR VR cases as well. And you know, and certainly you know, with millimeter wave, that's going to support you know those mixed reality um, use cases. And um, you know, we've talked about that on prior podcasts as well, the use of mixed reality in like sporting venues where. You do have, you know, millimeter wave deployed, but um, I think, you know, this is, again, this is another great example of, you know, both, you know, government and industry coming together um, to basically, you know, deploy test beds um, to test, you know, the the veracity of, um, you know, of 5G and its impact on, you know, particular use cases. So I think it's pretty exciting. Um, I don't know if you caught the article, if you had anything further to add, but I just... I thought it was an interesting topic to uh, to bring up on the podcast this week. I did not, um, but I do know that one of the um, upstart AR VR companies is actually based out of France. They're, okay. they're called Lynx. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a feeling that they'll probably be involved in some of this yeah. um, because they have a mixed reality headset um, that they're launching very soon. And I actually uh, kickstarted back in the day uh, last year when they when they launched their Kickstarter. Um, and they should be launching anytime now. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of um, really um, innovative work going on in France as, you know, trying to keep pace with the rest of the industry, whether it be France, you know, whether it be Spain or Germany or the US or mm-hmm. Korea. So um, I think it's really important for every country to be, you know, seriously investing in 5G. Yeah, I, you know, I totally agree. I'll just, I'll just, um, you know, kind of end with the point that, you know, Nokia is a, is a big partner. Um, there, there are a couple of uh, UK firms that are sort of focused on fiber backhaul that are involved. So this isn't just purely, um, you know, an effort by, by the country of France. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a multi-country effort. So good stuff. But let's move to your third and final topic. And you want to talk about earnings with uh, SoftBank and Arm. And it's sort of a, Tale of two cities, if you want to keep that French theme going. 
Um, so what happened was SoftBank reported their second quarter earnings, um, which they call Q1, which can be confusing. Um, but they reported $23 billion in losses. Um, with 21 billion of that being attributed directly to their their vision fund, which are a lot of their you know uh, high tech investments. Yeah. And then they also attributed a couple billion to um, losses in um, like the, the the yen to the dollar weakening, mm-hmm. um, which you know when you're when you're dealing with tens of billions of dollars, that can you know a ten percent difference can can make that yeah. difference, yeah. especially when all their debt is in the yen. Um, and then on top of that, Arm, which is still part of SoftBank, um, because SoftBank did buy them and um, tried to sell them to NVIDIA and, and failed. Um, they are now planning an IPO, and Arm was able to report its own segment revenues, and uh, sales went up 25%, and their EBITDA was up 240%, which was a combination of increased increased revenue but also cost cuts. Um, they did lay off a lot of people in the last quarter. Yeah. Um, so there are some, you know, staff um, trimming that was a result of this increased profitability. Right. And as you can imagine, this profitability is something you want to show um, prior to doing an IPO. Um, you know, IPOing at this time is probably not the greatest considering the current market conditions. Right. Um, so it's a question of whether, when they'll decide to IPO and if they w- really will do it. But their CEO, um, Renee Haas, did say that they are still on on track to do an IPO. So it remains to be seen when that will happen. Um, but it will be interesting to see, you know, what that ends up looking like uh, when they come to market. Um, other than that, you know, SoftBank is still very much you know, they're a mobile operator as well, but all these things that are going on around SoftBank have kind of dwarfed that business. Yeah. Um, and at this point, um, you know, SoftBank is more known for their investments than they are their actual ISP business. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is that they also, I think yesterday announced that they're going to be um, offloading some of their um, Alibaba shares um, to offset some of the losses that they've had because they've Alibaba is one of their best investments that they ever made. And um, I think it's kind of the reason why nobody is necessarily screaming doom and gloom on SoftBank because they still have, you know, that Alibaba investment as a uh, backstop. Yeah, you know, I wasn't surprised to see SoftBank's performance because unfortunately, you know, over the last several quarters, you know, they've, they've been on that downward spiral. I was surprised to see Arm posting record revenue. Um, because, you know, this has been a, you know, a pretty awkward, you know, transition for them as they shift gears from, you know, being an acquisition target to, to launching an IPO, which, you know, uh, you know, to your point, not the best time economically to, to do something like that. That's probably, it's probably going to be another year out, but who knows, but I'm curious. So I didn't, I didn't dig into the record revenue. What was responsible for, for the record revenue? Licensing. Lots so, of licenses. Specifically in, in, in sort of what, what kind of use case areas? So they're not breaking that out. And they're part not, of okay. that is because, you know, they're a division within a division, right? So, I, but I, I believe that a big portion of that is um, one that they, they've had, they have, you know, the, the mobile market is still large for them right. and their customers are still shipping a considerable amount of smartphones. But also there's a lot more ARM cores and in infrastructure. There's a lot more ARM cores in data center 
And yeah. all of those cores are licenses as well. So yeah. um, I think it's the expansion of server. Um, I think it's expansion of IoT. Um, yeah. and, and those are kind of bets that they put down years ago mm -hmm. um, that weren't necessarily paying dividends in terms of volume. But I have a feeling that they are today. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm glad you um, you could share some insights on that because that's a very good point. They don't they don't publish that information typically. And I also think that auto will be a factor as well. I think when yeah. when ARM becomes an independent company again, we'll we'll get much better vision into different parts of yeah. their licensing business. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly when they're on their own, there'll be there'll be better granularity into um, specifically the their their business unit. So. Well, great, my friend. It was another another awesome podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights for a specific top 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune again next week.